Disclaimer. The following podcast consists of legal information for the purpose of education, not legal advice. If you need legal advice, please contact a legal professional. The comments and opinions in this podcast also do not reflect those of Osgoode Hall Law School and are our own personal opinions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Osgood Health Law Association's podcast, Talking Health Law. Today, we have a very special episode lined up for you all. My name is Jacob Ron, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Health Law Association and the constant co-host of this podcast. <clears throat> Joining me today is Christian Becking, the co-president of the association and co-host for this episode. How's it going today with you, Christian? Going well, Jacob. Thanks for, for having me. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. It's a nice day. <laughs> awesome. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm really excited for our episode today. Um, our guest today is Valerie Wise. Uh, Valerie has been a health law lawyer for over 25 years with uh, experience in litigation, dispute resolution, and disciplinary hearing representation. She's the founder of Wise Health Law. Um, Valerie has represented litigants on both sides of medical malpractice suits. She has also represented individual health professionals and organizations in college matters, consent and capacity hearings, civil litigation, and hospital matters. Uh, she is the secretary of the health law section for the uh, Canadian Bar Association. She's presented uh, to numerous professional associations across Ontario, and she's been recognized by best lawyers in health law, healthcare law, and medical negligence. Thank you so much for being with us today, Valerie. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Jacob. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're very excited. So we're trying to start a tradition in our in our podcast where the first section um, is is open for fun questions. So we're just trying to get a little bit of personality and get listeners familiar with the guests that we have on this show. Okay. So I have a few would you rather questions prepared. And <laughs> just for the format, I'm going to ask both you and Christian to answer them. And, um, it, you know, it, you don't have to put a lot of thought into it. It's just meant to be lighthearted and fun. Um, so I'll ask the question, then Christian will, will give the first answer, and then you could go right after, if that works. Okay, yep. Okay, so question one. Would you rather win the lottery or live twice as long? Oh, well, as a student right now, definitely the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> And given my stage in life, I'm going to say live twice as long. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Would you rather make a phone call or send a text? Oh, phone call for sure. I, I can't text anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that totally depends on who I'm speaking to. <laughs> Do I want to talk to them or is it just easier to send a text? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, would you rather go deep sea diving or bungee jumping? Oh, I'm not a good swimmer, but bungee jumping is terrifying. But if I had, yeah, bungee jumping, because I would, no, I'm a terrible swimmer. <laughs> yeah, I would go with bungee jumping too. I'm claustrophobic. The idea of deep sea diving just scares Ooh. the out of me. Oh, just <laughs> just nope. saying bungee jumping makes me, makes me nervous. <laughs> Fair enough. Would you, rather, would you rather be an Olympic gold medalist or a Nobel Peace Prize winner? Oh, that one's tough. <laughs> 
I do love the hundred the hundred meter dash. So I, I think to to be faster than Usain Bolt <laughs> would be super cool. So I think uh, Olympic gold medalist. I think I would too, and I'm not sure that I can pinpoint an event, but I think the experience of that would be very cool. Representing the country like that would be very cool. So I agree. Would you rather hear the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know. Probably the bad news. Probably the bad yeah. news. Just to set expectations and then hopefully the good news saved me. Yeah, I agree. I think I'd rather get it out of the way. <laughs> all right. And this is the last one. Would you rather be fluent in all languages or be a master of every musical instrument? Ooh. Well, my family is very musical and I am not. So to be able to compete with them, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, <laughs> the musical instrument just to be able to show them up. That's a hard one. That's probably the hardest one um, because I love music too, but I think I'm going to go with languages because I, I think it would be nice to be able to travel and really talk to the people if we, once we can travel again yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, <laughs> and be able to uh, really talk to the people and get to know them. So I'm going to say the languages. All right. Amazing. So that's the first section of this, this episode. And now I guess we'll get into the more substantive questions, um, the more health law related questions. And to open it off, to open it up, um, the first question is just, what drew you to health law? Did you know from a very young age that you wanted to be a health law lawyer? Or was it something that evolved naturally, you know, at a later stage? No, actually, I was drawn to criminal law in, in law school. And I went to Osgoode. Um, and I did the crim intensive program. And I was on placement with a crown attorney downtown. And I loved it. Uh, I And I clerked then for Chief Justice Lemaire. So again, did mostly criminal law. Um, so that was where I thought I was going to end up. But um, just the way things worked. I did a variety of moves um, uh, after clerking. And then um, I was out in Los Angeles for a while and then um, doing entertainment litigation out there and then completely unrelated. And then when I came back, um, I ended up at one of the firms that does work for the CMPA. And so um, I thought I was going to go into criminal law, but it's, it's, it's tough. Um, I, I didn't, think that I wanted to go into the Crown's office. So I was looking at defense side and that's pretty tough um, when you're starting out you, you, there. You know, I, anyway, I ended up at a firm that did uh, medical negligence work on behalf of the CMPA. And I really, really loved the medicine. And I had the advantage in that situation of working with clients who were physicians. So who could explain the medicine to me. And so um, as I learned more and more aspects, you know, different cases raised different types of uh, issues, I really fell in love with that aspect of it. And so that's how I started my career in health law was doing defense work um, at one of the firms that works for the CMPA here in Ontario. Awesome. Um, well, just to kind of lean in a little bit. So could you just tell us a little bit more about what, uh, what your practice is in, and how it involves and is intersected with all the different aspects of health law? Right. So I started out that way. And then, so I've always practiced an element of health law. Um, 
And then as I've progressed through my career, I've continued to expand the kind of work that I do. So after having worked um, for a while at firms that represent the CMPA, I sort of switched to the other side and I started working at a firm that represented the hospital side of things. And so that was sort of, that was exposure to a broader uh, variety of health law. I've always enjoyed litigation. So that has always been the, the primary focus of my practice. I know that health law is so broad and some lawyers practice more in policy, more in corporate. For me, I, I was always um, drawn to the litigation aspect or the advocacy aspect. So that's where I sort of, when I went and worked at a firm that represented hospitals, I was introduced to a much broader um, aspect of the health law industry here in the province and then really started focusing on um, the defense of individuals. And so I started my own firm seven and a half years ago now. Um, and that was really how I wanted to brand the firm, focus the firm was I wanted to represent individual health professionals, whether they're nurses, chiropractors, dentists, denturists, massage therapists. Um, we have a broad, broad range of types of health professionals. Um, but that was really the niche that I enjoyed the most. And so that's that's what we're doing now. Right. And so a, a follow-up to that, um, I think from talking to a lot of my friends in law school, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect in, in understanding the theory of, of a certain um, law um, industry and the actual day-to-day -day practice of it. So some might be interested in criminal law and the big, you know, the big issues in criminal law, but the day to day of a criminal lawyer might not be something that, you know, that is interesting to them. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about what your day to day is like um, in your practice as a health law lawyer? Sure. So, again, we practice my practice is, is very specific to advocacy and litigation. So, you know, if, if someone were working in corporate or policy, um, the description would be very different. But from my perspective, um, we still spend a fair bit of time in the office, uh, even though the goal is to be at a hearing, whether it's in front of a tribunal or a court, uh, we do spend a fair bit of time in the office, but we are working on files where there is a dispute. So there's always the strategic um, considerations and components, trying to figure out uh, what's the best way forward. The primary goal for me is to try to get fairness for my client. I cannot guarantee results. There are certain things that my clients do. The penalty, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. So what we try to do is make sure that there is a fair process and then obviously minimize the impact on them as best we can, whether that means reducing the penalty or whether that means um, helping them prepare for the penalty that's coming. The types of work that we do, sometimes we are in the court process, the civil litigation process, defending individuals. Um, so we would sometimes be on examinations for discovery, which these days are on Zoom. Uh, sometimes we would be doing motions, depending on whether it's a productions motion or a summary judgment motion. If there's a limitations defense, we would sometimes um, go in and try to get the action dismissed on that basis. Uh, and then obviously, sometimes there's pretrials, but then the end, the end uh, would be if you can't resolve it, it would be a trial. Um, and in there as well, uh, there would be mediations. We do a fair bit of that. Um, in the Toronto jurisdiction, they're mandatory. In jurisdictions where they're not mandatory, 
they're still often pursued to see whether or not we can get a resolution without needing to go to the expense and the stress um, of a trial. So that's sort of the civil litigation side of things. And then on the tribunal side, we act in front of a number of different tribunals. So we act, um, we represent psychiatrists or other individuals who have done assessments um, to defend their assessments or to explain their assessments to the consent and capacity board if the individual impacted the patient um, is taking issue with an involuntary um, an involuntary admission or um, some type of assessment of their capacity to manage their affairs, etc. We do a lot of work at the various colleges under the Regulated Health Professions Act. So the RHPA um, governs 26 or 27 colleges now in the province. And all of the colleges function in the same way because they're subject to the same statute. So we represent individual health professionals at all of those various colleges. That work sometimes is just responding to a complaint, helping the member write a response that addresses all of the issues that is respectful to the regulator um, and, and strategically what the, the approach that we think they should take to a complaint. If it goes beyond complaints, um, and if, for example, there's a public disposition, if the complaint, if the ICRC, the committee that handles complaints, decides that there should be some public disposition, sometimes we will assist the member in appealing that outcome to the Health Professions Appeal and Review Board. Um, if they're referred to discipline, that's a completely other um, committee, another process. And in that situation, we would be assist, that's a very serious um, situation. And we would then be assisting them in preparing for that hearing and determining whether or not some resolution can be reached with the college prosecution or whether we need to go to a full contested hearing. Um, so it is a really a mixed bag, but uh, there's always an advocacy component to what we're doing. Awesome. That was there seems to be a lot going on and I think that's perfect and it <laughs> highlights and, and and this is what is lost I feel like on a lot of incoming law students and and that is that health law is just so inter interdisciplinary and there's so much going on and 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 really describing your day-to-day -day really highlights that so we really appreciate that um, so I think that that really highlighted uh, even a difference between the civil litigation side and and the tribunal and and what it's like to, to go before a, a professional board. Um, moving to COVID, have you found that any, any of the things you've, you've discussed, well, you highlighted that even now the discoveries are, are happening over Zoom, um, but has anything really drastically changed in your day-to-day -day professional life because of, because of COVID? Yes. Um, so originally, going back to March and April, not a lot was going on. The colleges were very much struggling to um, find their feet and move forward with their various processes. So there was a period of time where not much was happening. Um, but now they are much better that they're up and running and they're functioning. Uh, the various committees are meeting virtually. Um, so it has a, had a significant impact in that everything is proceeding over Zoom type platforms. We had a two week contested discipline hearing this summer 
um, that otherwise would have been in person. Uh, it involved allegations of sexual abuse, so very serious allegations. Credibility was at issue. We tried to resist on behalf of the member. We opposed the suggestion that the hearing would go forward by way of Zoom. Um, we lost that motion. Uh, and it, so that was a, it was a very, very significant difference to what we are used to. Uh, there were challenges in terms of managing documents. It took a lot to prepare for that hearing, that uh, a lot of time that you otherwise wouldn't need to spend. So you're all familiar with the concept of even something like exhibits. Normally you show up at a court, you show up at a hearing with your box of exhibits, um, everything's in paper and you that's how you manage it. And you decide as you're working your way through your case, what exhibits you're going to use in a virtual situation, all of that work has to be done up front. You need a hearing coordinator who has everything at her fingertips because she's the one doing the screen sharing uh, with the witnesses, with the panel, with the counsel. So managing exhibits was very, very different. Uh, normally, you're, I think the, the biggest difference was normally you're in a hearing room and there's a lot of, I, I think of litigation as very dramatic. Like there, there is a drama going on. There, is, there are ways that you can influence witnesses, ways that you can read the panel or try to read the panel, influence the panel that get lost when you're doing it over a virtual platform. Um, you are all familiar with these kinds of platforms. You know the number of talking heads on the screen at any given moment. So when a witness is testifying, and they're a very small square on the screen. Some people argue that, well, you have a better view of their face. Yes, you do, but you don't have a view of their body language. Um, and there's just a lot of distraction on the screen. Uh, for us, it was hard not being with our client. Normally, a big part of what I do because I represent individuals, there's a lot of emotional support that goes into my job. Um, a lot of counseling, a lot of encouraging, and that was entirely lost because I was not able to be with my client. She was alone in a room, um, you know, with the camera peering down at her, and I think that was very hard on her, and I know I felt very disconnected. I think that humanizing her was much more difficult than it would be in an in-person hearing. So certainly from a hearings perspective, things have changed a lot. We're doing discoveries by way of a Zoom platform as well. Um, similar issues, but I don't think they're as significant because in a discovery, you're creating a transcript anyway. You know, it's not as if your trier of fact ultimately is going to see a video of the examination for discovery. They, they would routinely just be reading a transcript anyway. Um, but uh, so so I, I'm not sure that the impact has been as negative on examinations for discovery. Not having to travel has been a benefit. <laughs> um, we have all gained a lot of time and it's been more efficient than for clients. They are not paying for travel time, uh, getting to the court reporters you know, half an hour early, getting set up and all of that, uh, all of that time has been saved. So that's been one of the benefits for sure. So it's a mixed bag. Similarly, there are certain types of hearings and meetings that go on at a college that aren't contested. So sometimes we have what are called pre-hearing conferences. They're similar to a mediation. Uh, it's, an, the, it's an attempt to resolve a matter that's been referred to discipline without having to go to a contested hearing. We can do those now over Zoom, and it, I think they're just as effective. 
And uh, with the breakout rooms, we can have a, a place to go and talk to our client privately and then come back into the main room. So I think the, there are advantages to those situations. Again, saving travel time, it's just more convenient to be in your office um, or in your home office, whichever, doing that kind of thing. And similarly, we have uncontested hearings. So I would say the vast majority of hearings at a college go forward as uncontested hearings. You reach some kind of a resolution with the college similar to civil litigation where most things settle. Um, and I think uncontested hearings work fine over a virtual platform. Again, it saves everyone time in traveling, particularly when the colleges will have members that sit on their council from across the province. So there have been real benefits, benefits there, but it's been a significant, significant change. Um, and the courts are still backlogged. Um, not a lot. Right. I mean, they're, they're moving, but it's pretty, um, pretty slow and very confusing because the practice directions keep changing. Have you noticed any change in tone and like in the seriousness maybe because it's like so much is online now, like, you know, because of technical dif difficulties that may arise, maybe, you know, the seriousness of a case or a hearing might be compromised a little bit? So I certainly felt that our hearing was compromised on a serious issue. Um, is, is that what you mean? Like, I'm just not sure I'm understanding the question. Jacob. Yeah, no, because I heard, I was reading um, a, a lawyer's experience doing Zoom, doing Zoom, doing a trial on Zoom. And, you know, sometimes there would be glitches and the judge would say, oh my gosh, I don't know what's happening kind of thing, right? And you kind of, you know, someone someone's life might be on the line, right? And so th those types of exchanges might might kind of detract from the seriousness of the case, I guess. And I, I was just curious if that might might affect because as you were saying, um, in trial and litigation, you know, the tone and the body language of the of the of the witness who's up on the stand, you know, all those things matter. Those little things. Right. Um, so I, guess, I do yeah. agree. Yeah, I do agree that the pandemic and it, I think it's a combination of, of Zoom, even what we refer to as law Twitter. Um, people have been humanized because everyone is broadcasting from their homes. So I think it has brought a different tone and a different feeling amongst the bar. Uh, we're just much more in each other's personal space. Uh, you know, there's kids, there's dogs, there's whatever um, in the background. And so I think, and I, I like that feeling. I like the more authentic feeling amongst my peers. But to your point, I can see how that would be upsetting for a client. And it's something to keep in mind anytime you're acting for a client, because often, particularly when you have a niche practice, you know the lawyers on the other side. You're dealing with them all the time. So when you, even in person, when you walk into a hearing room, I will always have a fairly warm greeting exchange with the prosecution who my client views as the enemy. Um, and I have to be careful about and explain to them that, listen, I need to be professional. I am the professional here and I need to, to remain professional with my colleagues. So you're going to see me greet them. You're going to see me shake their hand. Um, after every hearing, I always shake hands with opposing counsel and tell them that they did a good job. Um, and I need my client to understand why I'm doing that and so that they don't misread those cues. So I think it's, it is, I can totally understand how a client would feel that way um, because you're quite right. There are glitches inevitably 
and people are just more relaxed because they're in their home. It, that, that imposing atmosphere of the courtroom is lost. And so I, I think that is a, a, a good thing to pay attention to. Uh, and I, I understand what that lawyer would be talking about, but it's an issue anytime, but I can certainly see why it would be enhanced or, or be more of an issue now using uh, these kinds of platforms. So with regards to speaking about COVID and, and how it's changed, you know, the nature of the practice, um, do, you, do you see that, you know, the landscape might change in the future? Do you think that there will be, you know, a surge of certain case types that we might see um, in the next few months or next few years arising out of the whole pandemic situation in the health law field? Yeah, I think you've already seen a proliferation of cases involving long-term care um, homes. There are a few class actions and so on. I have not yet seen um, civil litigation against individuals that is specific to COVID, but that could just be time lag. Um, there has been, for example, litigation early on in the pandemic from unions, um, you know, insisting on protection for their workers. So there have been some specific um, fairly high profile cases that were um, coming up earlier. There's been a challenge to a visitor's policy, um, those kinds of things. But we've I, certainly we've seen the proliferation um, with respect to long term care. I could foresee per, perhaps um, litigation involving hospitals and physicians and so on as well, but um, I haven't seen any of it yet. Well, in terms of the college side of things, I would think that the issue is going to be uh, members who practiced if they shouldn't have been practicing or, or opened or because early on in the pandemic, members were sort of told you, you can only do emergency cases. And so we kept saying, you've got to watch your college website. You've got to, you know, what does that mean? How do we how do we implement the um, the restrictions and the recommendations in different colleges were drawing the line in different places. So I could see, for example, if someone got infected, um, potentially something coming from a college complaint around a member who was open when they shouldn't have been or didn't do, you know, didn't take certain precautions. But again, I haven't seen any of that yet, but that could just be a matter of time. Sorry, but one more thing I will say, sorry. One of the other pieces of litigation that is quite prevalent is um, business insurance, like loss loss of business insurance. I know that there is, I believe one class action involving denturists, I think. Um, so, so there are certain health professionals who were shut down and are trying to get insurance benefits. Um, and are, but, but I think that insurance piece is broader than just the health industry. I think there are many sectors that are facing that issue. Just to follow up with the, the long-term care homes. I know there was a, um, a ruling that came out of the uh, Ontario Superior, Superior Court um, where the Ontario Nurses Association um, had an issue with four long-term care homes about PPE. And um, I think that the, they weren't following the directives from the Chief Medical Officer of Health and um, they were pushing back against offering like more specific PPE for um, for COVID specifically, like the, the higher end type of mask. And I, and I don't wanna move too much into the employment and occupational health side of things, but um, are you seeing, like it just surprised me that there would be this 
almost this the like that, that they would even think to to not provide these these what seem to be vital pieces of equipment for for the health of not only the nurses but anyone in those facilities um, I don't know if you've come across and seen this reluctance from employers specifically in long-term care to I know it was just the one ruling and then it had they did have to follow the directives for those nurses but I, I don't know if you if you've seen anything in those lines, if that's still going on, especially with cases going going back up as time yeah. goes on. I know that that was in the spring and now we're back to even higher cases, so. Right, so, I mean, I have a particular perspective on that. Um, and I, I'm not sure that you're getting it through the media, um, but the issue at least, and I'm not speaking for all operators, but I know that the issue for certainly some operators was there just was no PPE. The government wasn't supplying it. So it wasn't that they wanted their nurses to walk into a dangerous situation. It was they were trying to ration um, the N95s in particular, those masks, uh, when the government couldn't tell them when they were going to get any more. So and, and there were different uh, I know that there were even different recommendations coming from example, some of the LINs or um, whatever the agency is called now, because they've also been disbanded, but, but that component of the government versus public health. So there was a, early in the pandemic, there was a lot of, and I'm not blaming anybody, everyone was scrambling to figure out what should the directives be. There were, there were conflict, there was conflict in some of the directives and there was a lack of supply. So I'm not, again, speaking for every operator and I'm not saying that the nurses were wrong in taking that challenge up or anything like that. But I do know that there were many operators that this was not an intention to deprive their staff of, of PPE that they needed. This was a question of, we don't have enough, you know, we've got enough for three more days what are we going to do? Um, because the government can't tell us when we're gonna get any more. So I know that that was a reality for some operators. Um, and I think that would explain why some of them were making the decisions that they were. I think the issue in that case was the operators were reluctant. And I can't remember if it was the government or the operators anymore, but the issue was can the nurse make the call in terms of what PPE he or she wants, as opposed to the organization making the call? Um, and I think that was driven by a lack of supply more than anything. It was tough in the beginning. I was getting frantic phone calls from operators saying, what am I gonna do? I don't have enough. I don't have enough. That's really, right. that's really interesting that you say that because you're right. I think it's, it is easy to, to paint the operators in a light that they wouldn't be that would they would almost be depriving the nurses of that but it's really interesting to, to hear that perspective of it and and even with kind of almost water cooler conversations with like my friends and specifically my family about the directives from the government and it's so hard to know what to do and these types of things can get lost so um that's that's really interesting that uh, that you say that so yeah, yeah. And some of the some of the older homes, you know, some of the times it was the layout where they've got wards instead of private rooms, and they will say that's because the government hasn't funded us enough to um, be able to do, you know, reconfigure. And that funding is now flowing. Like we're now seeing the government responding to the concerns. Um, and again, I'm not casting blame on anybody, but 
it is more complex than sometimes the media makes it out to be. Right. And having following up on that, having spoken to um, health professionals, different health professionals about their experiences throughout the pandemic, working in emergency rooms or in other, you know, in other clinics and seeing how stressful and uncertain many of the conditions were um, and continue to be at, at times, they, they often are concerned about the standard of care and whether, you know, sometimes that's something that's out of their control in a way, given the pandemic and some of the shortages of staff and equipment. And so have, has the standard of care shifted at all for health professionals, you think, during the pandemic? In other words, like our health professionals given more wiggle room um, because of the crisis and the uncertainty of, of everything? So think? in any situation, the standard of care is simply what would a reasonable physician, nurse, whatever in that situation do, right? And, and it's informed by everyone gets experts to speak about what is the standard uh, of care in that particular situation. Now, you can have situations where a judge would say, well, I don't care whatever, what, I don't care that that's the accepted standard. I find that it's not enough, it's not sufficient, and I'm gonna find that there was a breach of standard. But those cases are pretty rare. So normally, uh, you have experts talking about it, and we would certainly argue you have to look at the context. Um, so I think you will see um, judges and juries taking into account the context of something um, and not holding, you know, holding a physician or a nurse to a standard um, that, that would have been applicable in a normal situation, but we always have that. So, so for example, if you have a case involving an emergency room, uh, an emergency room um, visit, we will often want evidence around what was the flow through that emergency department that night. Like, what were the, ex what were, what resources were available? What else was going on? Whether it's a long, and that can happen in a long-term care home. You know, the nurse didn't. The nurse missed this because there was an emergency going on on another floor and she's got 120 residents that she's responsible for. So she was doing something else. So we always look at context. So I think that you will see um, courts and juries also taking into consideration the specific context of COVID. Right. And, and I was reading that there was a bill, Bill 218, that was being proposed in Ontario um, as a sort of protection for frontline workers. Um, I'm yeah. Not, yeah it, it, could you explain a little bit more about this? Is this related to standard of care and those issues? Yeah. So it's, it is very specifically though, um, designed to protect um, individuals who are, or organizations who are acting in good faith in cases where someone has become infected. So it, the, it, it will not cover, for example, um, a surgical case. I was in the hospital and there was a breach of standard and you know, I suffered this harm because of some surgical mishap or something that happened on the ward post-surgery. It has nothing to do with that. What it relates to is people who say, I was exposed, I was infected. Um, and so it will impact, for example, the litigation that, we, that has already been started around long-term care um, because those cases are premised on or complaining about infections and deaths as a result of infections. So what, what the bill says is that any individual or organization who um, is acting in good faith in accordance with the law and public health guidance relating to COVID-19 
um, they're not liable unless they're grossly negligent. So basically what it's doing is it's, it's, it's eliminating any cases that would uh, be based on just normal le levels of negligence. You have to be grossly negligent in order to be liable. And as long as you're acting in good faith um, with uh, the law and public health guidance relating to COVID-19, then you can't be found liable. It's very, very broad as well in terms of what that means, the, the, the law and public health guidance. Um, so it, it's a little bit on, it basically says, you know, even if you got the, even if you received the guidance from an employee of some public health office, as long as you can show that you're acting in good faith with that, then um, you can't be found liable. Um, and good faith effort is defined as an honest effort, whether or not that effort is reasonable. So again, eliminating the, the normal level of negligence and requiring proof of gross negligence or bad faith. And bad faith is always really, really hard to prove. We have that standard in some other um, legislation too, where, for example, um, at the colleges, they're all protected unless they're acting in bad faith. And it's really, really, that is a really, really hard standard to prove. The other interesting thing about Bill 218 is that it has retroactive effect. So once passed, um, and I believe it's third, it's through third reading, but I don't, it hasn't been proclaimed yet. Um, it will eliminate even cases that have already been started. Um, so wow. That's, that is one of the things that is um, so controversial that it has, it, it specifically says it has retroactive effect and, and it states that no one is entitled to any compensation for the termination of rights under the act. So it would just eliminate all of that litigation. So that's why you're seeing a significant reaction from the plaintiff's bar um, over, this, over this bill. Wow, do you, do you foresee any sort of maybe constitutional challenges to this or anything like that, or this is I, not an unheard of or un, uh, yeah, an unheard of situation? I would think that there will be. We're not the only province. Um, my understanding is that British Columbia and Nova Scotia at least also have the, uh, the legislation. Um, and again, so, so what the government is saying is that they want to protect, because it doesn't, it's not specific to healthcare workers, it just happens to include them, but they want to, in, you know, cover even volunteers that are delivering meals, um, cashiers at a grocery store, um, you know, it's, it's, it's intended to protect all of those people that are out there um, keeping us going. It specifically does not apply to businesses that were supposed to be closed. So you can't use it to say, um, well, I opened when I wasn't supposed to, but I complied with public health guidance. Um, it's there, there, is a, there is an exception for any businesses that were supposed to be closed. Um, it does not apply, it doesn't protect them. That, that is really, really interesting. You are the secretary of the health law section of the CBA. Uh, the Canadian Bar Association. Um, and a lot of our uh, fellow students and classmates are, are not always involved in the CBA or the OBA and not necessarily aware of, of the possible benefits of getting involved with, uh, with the CBA. Um, would you be able to explain why students or articling students or um, early professionals, young associates would be, should be members and get involved with, uh, with an organization like the CBA? Sure. So just first to explain the structure. So the Canadian Bar Association is the association that 
as the name suggests, goes across the country. And then each province has its own provincial section um, that is a part of the, of the CBA. So when you join the Ontario Bar Association, you automatically become a member of the Canadian Bar Association. Different provinces have different fee structures, but I'm happy to say that in Ontario, membership for students is free. So um, it's something that you should try and there's at, at no cost, uh, get involved and just see for yourselves the benefit. But I really, I encourage my associates um, to go on the executive of some section of the provincial level Ontario Bar Association. So we've got the Canadian Bar Association, we've got the Ontario Bar Association, and then within each, there are specialty law sections that have arisen. So Ontario has a huge, huge uh, array and variety of different sections that you can get involved in health law, but there's also civil liberties, there's employment law, there's civil litigation, there's insurance defense. So there's a wide range of sections. So I belong to the health law section, I belong to the administrative law section, and I believe I'm still in the ADR section as well, because um, I'm a mediator as well. But um, you can choose, I think two sections come with your OBA membership, but don't quote me on that part. Um, but you can choose different sections within the OBA to become involved with as well. And I encourage my associates to sit at the executive level. And what that means is you have monthly meetings um, and around the table are other lawyers practicing in that area of law, but their practices may be very different. So even just the discussion around the table is interesting and you hear about I never knew that was a thing. I, you know, I didn't know that that, that that area of health law even existed. And usually I believe they, they want student members on the executive. So it's something to look into even as a student. And at the executive level, so the first benefit at the executive level is being around the table and being able to participate in those conversations. But whether you're on an executive or not, they are always looking for publications to go into their email newsletters. And so we're encouraging students, if you, and, and we're encouraging professors to speak to students, if there's a paper that you've done for a class that you could easily move around a little bit, uh, change a little bit, and turn it into something that um, you could publish in either the OBA newsletter or even at the national level, if it's something of national importance, in the CBA um, newsletter they are always looking for contributions and it's a way to get profile it's a way to get your name out there it's a way to meet people um you know eventually it's also an opportunity to get speaking engagements but certainly at a student level and at a young lawyers level there are lots of opportunities to get published and that goes on your cv and people know your name um, and it's people that are in the area that you want to practice in. So it, to me, um, there are real advantages to getting, um, your, getting your profile out there, getting your name out there. There are, as I say, free, free membership, but then there's also discounts on, I think, rental cars and maybe computer equipment and insurance. Like there's different discounts that um, different companies that come forward and give discounts for CBA and OBA members. The big thing for students is we have a student essay competition every year um, with a $500 prize. So that's going to launch. I think the splash on that is going to launch in January and they're going to announce last year's winner and then start the competition for this year. And usually the deadline for submission is in April. So definitely watch for that. And again, 
you don't have to necessarily write a new paper. You can take a paper that you've already written um, and submit it to the essay competition. So that's the Canadian Bar Association health law section. Um, the essay competition applies to that specifically. But as I say, there are publication opportunities both at the OBA and the CBA um, level. So I just think it's a great way of getting to know people, particularly when you want to focus on a somewhat niche area of practice. And as I say, they are always encouraging student involvement, which is why I want to do these kinds of things to let students know. Because when I was a student, I had no idea. I wasn't exposed to it at all. It, was, it took me much longer to get involved. And ever since I became Ever since I started, I'm always on an executive of the OBA, and now I'm on the health law section executive of the um, CBA as well. So we do, and we do a lot of CPD. There's a lot of continuing education programs. Um, so that's another advantage, but um, you can participate in those as non-members. It's just you get a better rate as a member. Well, I hope, I hope our classmates take that seriously and, and get more involved. Um, it's just a great opportunity to get to know other lawyers that are practicing in the area. I'm actually a part of the Ontario Bar Association Health Law section, and I, I can say from my experience, being part of the meeting, it was a little bit, it was a little bit intimidating at first, but everyone's so nice and friendly, and, and it really is like a good way to meet people and just listen in on, you know, topics in, in that field. And when you're talking about planning for a continuing education program and you're brainstorming, you get to hear about things. There's this new piece of legislation in this, in this area. There's this initiative got going on, this tribunal's backed up, whatever, whatever, whatever. And there are things that you don't necessarily otherwise know about. So, yeah. And so I guess to close off our episode, um, I wanted to ask you if you maybe had any advice for students who are interested in health law, um, you know, any tips for them you know, should they be, you know, trying to publish as much as they can? Should they try and reach out to health lawyers? Like, is there anything that you specifically would recommend for those students? I think both of those things are good ideas. Like I said, um, publishing articles, case comments, um, something even simple, just to get your name out there so that, because it's a fairly small bar. Um, we all pretty much know each other. And there's a lot of, you know, cross referrals. And I will often get, you know, an email from someone saying, I've met with this person. Can they chat with you? Um, I met with this person. They're not really right for me, but, you know, I'm impressed with them. Can they chat with you? So I would definitely um, suggest that. I know one of my associates that you probably know then, Jacob uh, Roseman, because she also sits on the health law exec of the OBA. Uh, she did a lot of that when she was looking for her first job. She reached out to a lot of health lawyers, and I think she would say that was an excellent way to get information about where you might want to fit. But also now she knows those people. So uh, even though she's with me, she knows other lawyers because during that process of looking around, she met with them. The other thing that she did was demonstrated to me an interest in health law. So if your CV has nothing on it to do with health law, that doesn't really tell me that you really know what you want, that, you, that this is something that you're really interested in. So she went off and she did a certificate um, I think through Osgood PD, like Osgood Continuing Education, some kind of a certificate in, in risk management or something like that, that was specific to health law. Um, 
my other associate took a summer job with the Ontario uh, Medical Association. So if you can do something on your resume or your CV that demonstrates an interest, I would recommend that as well, because we get a lot of unsolicited resumes and CVs. It's an, it's an area of interest for a lot of people and you want to stand out. Right. That's great. I mean, Christian, do you have any, any other questions that popped into your head? Uh, no, no, that was awesome. So much of that information is, is great for selfishly for myself and Jacob included, <laughs> but I know for our listeners and the Osgood Health Law Association, um, they're going to love, they're going to love it. So, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to meet with us and chat with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Yeah, this was very, very fun, entertaining, and it was also very informative. So thank you so much. You're welcome.